0: Friends, it's great to be with you this morning. Turn with me in your Bibles to our second in our series on Paul's letter to the Romans. We're in Romans uh, chapter 1. It's an overview this morning, but let me read for us uh, the first verse of chapter 1. This morning is an overview, uh, but let me introduce it for us by reading this verse, for it has a key phrase for this overview. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle set apart for the gospel of God. In the uh, popular show Mythbusters, common misunderstandings are presented, tested, and then at the end of each episode uh, they are busted or perhaps uh, instead declared as plausible or at least confirmed. Here are a few myths about what it means to be a Christian that need to be busted. Number one... Some people think being a Christian means being good. They suspect Christians therefore regard themselves as better than other people. Holy Joes, they say. And if asked to become a Christian, they may well reply, Oh, I could never be good enough. For they are thinking that being a Christian means being good. While Paul's letter to the Romans will show us no one, no one is good enough. Other people think that being a Christian means uh, being a bigot uh, these days, I'm afraid, influenced by various controversies in the media or uh, in uh, current affairs of one kind or another. They suspect that Christians are now just against everything, and we do not always help ourselves with coming out with a new statement against whatever the latest controversy may be. They say about Christians, you are all so anti-fill-in-the-blank with whatever is the latest issue. Romans will show us that uh, instead, by faith in Christ and therefore in Christ, all races, Jew and Gentile, all races, can be one. In fact, it is the only source of real community and global unity is faith in Christ. Other people think that being a Christian means getting a get out of hell for free card. They say that they are Christian even though they don't really sort of go to church very often or act like Jesus might expect them to act, if we're honest. Perhaps you could call this the easy button view of Christianity. Well, Romans will show us that actually following Jesus means in the end, Romans 12 verse 1, offering up our bodies as living sacrifices, which is your spiritual worship. not exactly an easy button. There are many people today who seem to think that being a Christian means being prosperous. This is the so-called prosperity gospel, which ironically is neither the gospel nor prosperity. It deceives on both accounts. Real prosperity is not money. You can meet many rich people who are miserable, they are not prosperous. And the real gospel does not promise money, it promises something far, far greater, namely glory. Romans will make that clear, the end of Romans chapter 11, the famous doxology that Paul writes, glory. Some people historically have thought that being a Christian must be definitively designated by joining a particular church, perhaps uh, the Roman Catholic Church, but others have had the same mistake. They forget that the Orthodox Church, the Armenian Apostolic Church, the Coptic Church, part of the Orthodox Church more broadly as is the Georgian Orthodox Church, the Celtic Church when it was still in existence, uh, are or were all as or more ancient than any other claims to ancient Christianity. They seem to forget that at one point in the Middle Ages there were three popes at the same time, all battling for unique papal succession. Well, Romans will show us that salvation centers not on the pope or any other church figure, and of course there are many other possibilities that people have offered down through the history and are still doing so today, but on Christ. Not on the church, which is only mentioned by name, Obviously, the church is in Romans frequently, but the word church only me- is mentioned by name once, right at the end, Romans chapter 16, verse 1. Not on the church, but on justification by faith. That's the center point, not any particular claim to ancient succession. If you follow Romans, that is. And then there are people who think that being a Christian simply means being old fashioned, you have to wear a suit. Look, you don't. (laughs) See? There we are. You can even roll up your sleeves, take off your tie. You're not converted by what you wear, nor by uh, what uh, you uh, think is particularly fashionable. Of course, you don't have to be fashionable either. But they seem to be surprised that you can come to a church where there are many vibrant services and multiple activities, women's Bible studies, uh, resale shops, men's gatherings, small groups. We had our small groups connection point last night, which was, uh, I hear, fantastically well attended and a lot of excitement there. Children, youth ministries, student ministries, new satellite services being launched even. They cannot, it seems to me, quite believe that people who follow Jesus are no longer wearing togas and sandals. Well, see, Romans, though it is an ancient letter, will actually show us how the gospel can be contextualized to a modern urban center. For that was, of course, Rome at the time. And The same principles can be applied today. Well, my friends, as we look into this letter, we will bust these and other myths about what it means to be a Christian. In fact, Romans does not use the label Christian at all. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. Paul is writing, he says, not to Christians. He doesn't use that word. It only occurs that word three times in the New Testament. Paul is writing to those loved by God and called to be saints. Or holy. So we're examining the ancient source text for what it means to be loved by God and called to be holy through faith in Jesus. Now, this week is an overview of the whole Romans to bust the myth in particular that following Jesus is just a get out of hell for free card. Here's how you know if uh, you believe this myth you're bored with Jesus, the Bible, God. Jesus is religious jargon to you because he's merely a means to an end. The road to hell is not only paved with the bald heads of friars, as Martin Luther famously said. It's not only paved with good intentions to believe in Jesus, never acted upon, as many an evangelist has made his or her appeal, The road to hell is paved for people who think they have a get-out-of-hell-for-free card and are bored with Jesus, do not like Jesus, do not love Jesus, do not serve Jesus, and will therefore spend all eternity clutching their get-out-of-hell-for-free card while under the everlasting judgment of God. Didn't we sing about it earlier? Perhaps uh, you were so enamored by the tune, you didn't notice the words, Isaac Watts' uh, hymn that the choir sang in the anthem. "'Think, O my soul, the dreadful day when this incensed God shall rend the sky and burn the sea and fling His wrath abroad.'" Oh, well, we didn't sing it, they sang it, but they were words that we had in front of us. Now, I am preaching this morning, my prayer has been that uh, the results of this morning would be that uh, any who are clutching that uh, get out of hell for free card this morning would, because of this sermon, be moved to avoid that destiny. That's my goal. Now Romans can be studied in a number of different ways. I've preached a sermon series on Romans that went on for only ten weeks or so, whereas this is the second of three sermons I'm going to preach on Romans 1 verse 1. You could preach a single message on the whole letter of Romans, I suppose. Uh, But this morning we're flying to a high level, 30,000 feet, overview of Paul's main theme in Romans. And the point is to get the big picture, and it's essential to have that in our minds so that when we go through it more slowly, we have, as it were, a GPS map, a satellite link-up to uh, connect us to the overall uh, panorama. So this morning we're going to find out when it was written, from where it was written, why it was written, as well as uh, how the Roman church to whom it was written came into existence. And this will show us the overall theme of Romans, and therefore it will bust the myth (laughs) that following Jesus is just about having that get out of hell for free card. So when and where did Paul write this letter? Paul's letter to the Romans was written, uh, most scholars think, in about A.D. 57 from Corinth, uh, soon after he'd done his ministry there, his main ministry there, probably from the house of Gaius. And we may know it that specifically because in Romans chapter 16, verse 23, uh, you can turn it up if you like, you don't have to, but there you'll see uh, that uh, Paul says where he was staying as uh, he was uh, dictating or writing this letter, Gaius, who is host to me, he tells them. So the house of Gaius, probably in Corinth, and Acts 18, verse 18, tells us when Paul wrote the letter. For Luke there says that Paul stayed many days longer in Corinth, as most people think, most scholars think, he wrote this letter to the Romans. How did the Roman church begin? Of course, this has been a great issue of controversy through church history. But most scholars are certain now that the Church of Rome was not directly founded by Paul or Peter, as many have traditionally thought. For according to one of the earliest Christian authorities, writing soon after the time of Paul, a man known uh, to history uh, as Ambrosiasta. What a wonderful name. You want to call your... If you're going to dedicate a child, how about coming out of the, uh, You know, next time. Ambrosiasta. Um, Ambrosiasta. Anyway, the, he wrote this. The Romans had embraced the faith of Christ, although they saw no sign of mighty works, nor, he says, any of the apostles. So Rome was, uh, though... Uh, Almost certainly the place where actually Paul and Peter, though they didn't start it, they were martyred there. Most people think that. We told that story last week with regard to Paul. Some think that because on the day of Pentecost in Jerusalem there were visitors from Rome, Luke says, uh, when Peter first preached, uh, that in that sense uh, visitors came back to Rome after Peter's preaching and started the church. That is certainly possible. Uh, But equally likely, the gospel was spread by a number of different peoples. They journeyed along the frequented routes from Jerusalem to Rome. All roads led to Rome, and along those roads, the gospel traveled. Now, why, though, did Paul write Romans? And this is of great significance. So turn with me in your Bibles to page 949 in the Pew Bibles, Romans 15, verse 14. What is the purpose for this letter? I think Paul actually tells us himself. Uh, Romans 15 verse 14, he begins by saying that he's very satisfied with them uh, as the, the Romans. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. So how, whatever reason he's writing, this is not a corrective. Paul is not running to the Roman believers to correct them as he wrote many of his other letters. In fact, at the beginning of the, the letter, and I almost said the beginning of the gospel, as Luther rightly pointed out, this letter is purest gospel. At the beginning of the letter, uh, Paul says about the Romans, uh, Your faith is proclaimed in all the world. So not only are they a good gathering of Christians in Rome, they are in fact famous for being a good, uh, a, a good bunch of people who are following Jesus. So Paul's letter to the Romans is not to correct some obvious mistake. What is his reason for writing? Well, chapter 15, then verse 15. He says, but on some points I have written to you very boldly. So in other words, when you read Romans, you do feel some conflict, some controversy, some boldness. Yes, boldness at times. Paul was pushing against possible errors. Why? He says, by way of reminder, because of the grace given me by God to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God. In other words, Paul tells the Romans he's written this letter because he believes he must give them a bold reminder, written to you very boldly, by way of reminder, of the gospel of God. That's what he's serving, that purpose, the gospel of God. Why? For the Gentiles. That is for the sake of all nations. So Paul, as the apostle to the Gentiles, of course, always had that international mission of the church, reaching all nations at the forefront of his mind. And he's writing to the Roman church at the heart of the global Roman empire. There it is, Rome, (laughs) And he's concerned that they would have a strong foundation concerning the gospel of God, even by then writing at times a bold reminder so that possible error and mistakes, doctrinally and practically, would be rejected by this important church. Why? For the sake of all nations, for the Gentiles, for global mission. See, Paul knew everything came to Rome. Everything went out from Rome, good, badly, and disgusting. It's the hub of the world and therefore strategically Paul saw the church at Rome as a potential launching pad for world missions. And so he writes them a bold reminder of the gospel of God for that purpose, for all nations. Now I want to say rather boldly, wouldn't it make a difference if the Roman church today actually read Paul's letter to the Romans and believed it? Is that a little bold? Here is God's letter to the Roman church one question I want us to ask as we go through it is how much is that defining the Roman church today? How much should it define the Roman church today? It certainly did in the early years and that Roman church was a launching pad for world missions and maybe we should be praying that it would be again in the future. This gospel of God, perhaps that's a little bold. But if I never say anything bold from this pulpit, then I'm a false teacher. I must be held captive to this. Now, you can hear the all-nations heartbeat of Paul when further along in chapter 15, you come to verse 24. I love this bit. Can you see verse 24? Here's Paul writing to this probably rather sort of self-pleased bunch of people for living in Rome. They're the New York City of the world. They're in Manhattan. And what does he say about them? I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. Can you imagine saying that to a bunch of Christians in Manhattan? Well, you know, I hope to see you in passing as I go to upstate New York. There's a little village there I'd like to see, as it were. I mean, not to be, you know, disparaging to Spain, but at the time Spain was the sort of western furthest reaches of the empire, you know, on the extremity. Paul always has that in mind. He hopes to see New York City quickly in passing while he makes his way to Timbuktu. He's always thinking of the gospel frontier, the next step in reaching all nations, and that's why he's writing to them, for that purpose, to be helped on my journey there by you. Uh, Liberal scholars think that Paul's letter to the Romans is a fundraising letter, which I think is probably pushing it a little bit too far. But certainly would be nice, wouldn't it, if one day we uh, read a letter from one of our missionaries that was this long and had this much doctrine? And so he writes a bold reminder concerning the gospel of God for the sake of all nations. By the way, missionaries must, of all people, be most doctrinally aware, for they are dealing with the great meeting point of the gospel and other cultures. They have to be very bound coherent with this message in order to do that in an appropriate and uh, healthy way. He wants to ensure the soundness of this church because of its significance in God's plans for the world. I want to tell you then that churches with world mission vision like College Church need to be especially careful that uh, they maintain a doctrinal clarity, not to become overly picky of course, uh, loving, Centered on the cross and letting other matters uh, not be divisive points. But any mistake about sort of core unifying doctrinal gospel issues, any mistake here is, will be only magnified many times over on the mission field. Slight redirection at the source of the stream will mean that the river is running in an entirely different direction by the time it gets to the ocean. My friends, evangelistic zeal is no excuse for doctrinal error. In fact, most doctrinal heresies have come from evangelists who have written theologies and perhaps should have just kept on with doing evangelism. In fact, doctrinal error will, in a generation or two, kill evangelistic fervor. Why? Because the sacrifice that mission necessitates requires a big vision of the gospel of God. If you don't have that, no one is going to give their lives to go to Timbuktu, No one will, let alone give their lives to tell their neighbor just down the road who might uh, not give them a job next time they need one because you spoke to them about Jesus. People do not give their lives for small gods, diminished Bibles, or bloodless crosses. Now the gospel of God is the driving passion of the letter. It's in the very first verse then of the book, Romans 1 verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It's not about tradition. It's not about being old-fashioned. It's not about being good. It's not about any of these common myths. It's about the gospel of God. And everything in the letter hangs on that, that gospel of God, which he boldly reminds them for the sake of all nations. That's the melodic line of Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, the two parts that harmonize on that theme and bust the various myths, but in particular the one we're focusing on this morning, get out of hell for free card. And those two parts that harmonize on the melodic line of the gospel of God are righteousness by faith and obedience of faith. Two key phrases that we will return to over and over again as we go through Romans, but I will introduce for us this morning. Look at Romans 1, verse 16 and 17, often said to be the thesis statement of the letter. Paul writes, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. There it is again, the gospel. For it is the power of God, the gospel of God, by the power of God, Verses 16 and 17, chapter 1, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, all nations, vision. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith, righteousness by faith. Now, as I say, this is structurally, in ancient letters, a thesis statement. And all that means is that the careful hearer would have been alerted that this was a key sentence or two as they heard the letter being read. And this righteousness is by faith from beginning to end. It's from faith, for faith. From faith, for faith. A very key phrase that we'll look at when we get to that in 2013, not 13, 16, Thirteen is this year. We won't get there this year, I'm pretty sure. Righteousness is God's righteousness for us, very simply, and again we'll look at that more as we go through the letter. Faith is trustingly receiving that righteousness. So faith is not believing something that's not true, it's not a leap in the dark, it's not a magical property. It's a God-given trust in Christ, God-given trust in Christ to receive His Righteousness, not a leap in the dark, not a magical property, a God given trust in Christ to receive his righteousness. Let me illustrate it like this. Over the summer, I read uh, that there was a TV event series called Under the Dome, based on a book by Stephen King. And this uh, uh, series is apparently about people stuck beneath the dome from which they could not escape, Though water could pass through it, the atmosphere in the dome, the weather was different from outside and those inside could not get outside, that kind of science fiction uh, malarkey, right? It Seems to me frequently our misunderstandings about what it means to follow Jesus are a bit like that. There's a glass wall between us and the truth. And whatever is said, whatever is done, we're still in the dome, unable to escape. It just bounces off us like pebbles off concrete. We've heard all the language before, all the jargon. Jesus, blah, 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 blah. Righteousness, blah, blah, blah. Faith, blah, 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 blah. And we're still in the dome. But then we're faced with the righteousness of God. His holiness, our depravity, our being under the judgment of God. Remember, we heard the choir sing about that. We're no longer going through the motions then. We're faced with eternal realities. And we need to find a solution to our situation before a holy God. And we need this righteousness of God to be ours be right before God who is holy. And righteousness of faith breaks through, righteousness by faith breaks through the dome. It shatters our assumptions that we've heard it all before and we know it all. And that basically it's just about having a get out of hell for free card. For what Paul was talking about is something that must transform us by the power of God. Think about that phrase, the power of God. He who made everything, who sustains everything, who is present and not just distant, he's present. Whose almighty power is greater than Hiroshima, September the 11th, and World War III combined. In fact, infinitely greater And you're going through the motions. <laughs> it breaks through fake religion, the power of God. You're not crying out to God that you might be saved? You sit there and wonder whether the sermon has the right articulation or enunciation or it's told enough illustrations or too many or made too many points or too few. This righteousness of God breaks through the dome. It breaks through fake religion. Now, you say, well, righteousness is by faith. does Does that not mean that I can do whatever I like? Well, this is the question that Paul was always faced when he preached the gospel. In Galatians there, he had preached a message of radical free grace. The false teachers from James came along and told the Galatian Christians that grace was all very good, but they needed law. They needed to add their faith, their faith to their faith the righteousness of the law to be saved. And the same accusation is behind the Jerusalem Council in Acts, where Paul was accused of being too easy on the Gentiles for not making them keep the law. Oh, that poor, he's soft on sin, they were saying. It's only by faith you can do whatever you like. The same accusation stands behind Romans 3, verse 8. Why not do evil that good may come, as some people slanderously charge us with saying? Romans 3, verse 8. This was the accusation, but it was a natural misunderstanding or myth, mistake as well because if you understand the radical nature of the grace that Paul preached then Romans chapter 6 verse 1 Paul himself asks the same question what shall we then say are we to continue in sin that grace may abound by no means he replies by no means but why not why not Paul why not continue in sin if righteousness is truly by only faith from faith for faith because of the other sub-theme in Romans that supports the overall panoply of the gospel of God and that busts the myth that following Jesus is just to get-out-of-hell-for-free card, which is, second, the obedience of faith. Righteousness by faith, the obedience of faith. It was the great Welsh preacher Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones who first pointed out the significance of this phrase. It occurs at the beginning of the letter, chapter 1, verse 5, and at the end, chapter 16, verse 26. Chapter 1, verse 5 Through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. So there's the big gospel of God overarching theme, sub theme, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all nations. It's a structural hint indicating its importance as a supporting sub-theme to the overall melody of the gospel of God that it occurs at the beginning, chapter 1, verse 5, and at the end, chapter 16, verse 26. And through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations this gospel of God according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. That's chapter 16, verse 26, the obedience of faith. The obedience of faith. Now what is this obedience of faith? Here's what it is not in this place, that particular phrase. The obedience of faith is not obedience that comes from faith. I don't think that's what Paul means here. It certainly is true that when we believe in Jesus, we will follow Jesus, that we'll gradually grow in terms of there being fruit, and uh, that's the natural, gradual course of uh, life for a Christian. Sometimes we think we're making very little progress at all as Christians, don't we? And we wonder whether we really are a Christian. But if there is fruit, we love Jesus, and being here this morning is probably a good sign that you are at least seeking God, we uh, are bearing fruit. And so there should be obedience that comes from faith. Well, that is certainly true, and it's elsewhere taught in the Bible. As the Puritans would say, we're saved by faith alone, but not by the faith that remains alone. There must be the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5. And if there is not, then uh, instead we should seek God for his salvation in the first place. However, I don't think that's what Paul is meaning here. Paul does not say here the obedience that comes from faith. Here, he says, the obedience of faith. So this obedience is part of faith. It is a constituent element of faith. It's the obedience of faith. I suspect the challenge we have with understanding the obedience of faith is this common myth that we are addressing this morning, that following Jesus is merely about having a get out of hell uh, for free card, the easy button view of Christianity. I've heard experts in the sociology of religion in the Western world call this common myth decisionism. So we often think that we simply make a decision for Jesus and then we are saved. That's all there is to it. The choice is ours. It's in our power. We're like someone who goes to a store, is presented with options, we're told we need to make a decision and we decide for Jesus. Well, that's not the obedience of faith. It is faith as a decision by human will and power. It's not what John talks about in the Gospel of John when he says that those who become children of God are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, not of the will of man, but of God, John chapter 1 verse 13. So being born of God, regeneration, being a real new Christian, being born of God, is not because of any human decision. It's not our will, not our nature. Some people say that there are people who are more religious than others, maybe, But following Jesus is not because of our flesh or nature or decision. It's something supernatural. It is not our sovereign decision at all. He is the sovereign. We must receive His righteousness by our faith, but it is by the obedience of faith. And what that means is that Paul is saying that to believe in Jesus is to obey God. Believing in Jesus is submitting to God and His way. It is obeying His gospel, and that is obeying God. It's putting God first. It's yielding to God and His way of salvation. To believe in Jesus is to do what God tells us to do, namely to believe in Jesus. <laughs> so Romans chapter 10 and verse 16. Paul says, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. Interesting return to that phrase. You and I would probably say, but they have not all believed the gospel. Well, Paul's just talked about faith right before verse 16 in chapter 10. Uh, Verse 10: for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Verse 13: everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Yes, absolutely. It is righteousness by faith. Believe and you are saved. But what does it mean to believe in him, to call on him? It means obeying the gospel or the obedience of faith. Now let me try and illustrate it for us like this because it is hard to grasp because some of us have been taught very many different things with relation to faith. Every now and then there seems to be a new series of that fly-in-the-wall program called Big Brother, people are shut up in a house, their every move is recorded, and their behavior, good, bad, and damn right embarrassing, <laughs> is broadcast to the world. I ask myself this How is it that people who say that they follow Jesus can behave in similar sort of ways? What does someone think? What's going on in their minds? When they come to church, they grow up in a Christian home, they sing a hymn, blah, 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 blah. And They go through the traditional ceremonies, but nothing happens. They're not excited about the Bible. They yawn before the Bible is even opened. They message each other by text messaging, as the Bible is explained. And at the name of Jesus, their heart does not secretly thrill. It secretly goes, blah blah blah." What is going on with such a remarkable pattern of Big Brother-like behavior? Well, I think the answer is that they seem to feel that they are the stars of the show. They think that they are the center of the universe. That they have made a decision and we all watch them. Even God watches them and is uh, rather pleased to have them on his side. After all, haven't they done what they've been told? They have made a decision. They have made a decision, it's their decision. They think the faith that saves them means the faith that makes a choice and then goes off to do whatever you like. Perhaps it's a slightly crass metaphor, but I wonder whether they believe in God like a man believes in a steak something to consume. God is for ease, happiness, a comfortable life, and a get-out-of-hell-for-free card. And us preachers don't always help because we're always trying to appeal to such people and make it seem as nice as possible in order to get them to fill our pews. And we don't say it's the obedience of faith. Now, don't misunderstand me at this point either. So many of these things need to be carefully grasped. Don't misunderstand me at the other end. God does give joy forever, and we talk about that a lot at College Church. Church. He gives joy forever, more joy than anyone or anything else in the entire universe, Why? He is the source of all joy, and all other joys are merely a reflection, a pale shadow of joy itself, which is found in God alone. All other joys disappoint us in the end because they're all intended to lead us to that joy, God. But joy is not our God. And so we do not abandon God when we do not experience joy in life because we worship God, not joy. Now, I think they think they have a get out of hell for free card because they are the center of the universe. And they do not understand that faith, trusting Jesus, is about obeying the gospel. It's the obedience of faith. It's not about them. It's about God. This is the gospel of God. It's not my gospel. There are a lot of other things that I could talk about uh, the pulpit here if I wanted to that were my idea, but this is not my idea. It's not my gospel. I did not invent it. It's not even our gospel. We did not formulate it in community by tradition. It is God's. He has the authority. He has the power. Now, he offers righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. And that faith is obeying the gospel. It's submitting to him. It's not choosing him like you choose which type of cereal you will eat tomorrow. It's the obedience of faith. It is surrender. Well, my friends, one common popular misunderstanding of what it means to follow Jesus, making a human decision that will give you a get out of hell for free card myth, busted. Let's pray together. Oh Lord Jesus, help us this morning to crown you as Lord of all. For we pray it in that precious name of Jesus. Amen.